Well, for the past 16 weeks, most of us have spent the vast majority of our time at home. And if you're anything like me, this is not typical. But I found great blessing in this season of uncertainty and unknown in my family specifically. Um, I have two adult children, both are college students. And so the reality has occurred to me that aside from this kind of strange and unexpected situation, I likely would have never had this amount of time with all four members of my family living under one roof ever again. This hit me about week three of our stay-at-home orders. And I remember as it occurred to me, I began thinking about many of you, the families in our church, and specifically thinking about those of you who have young children at home during this time. As I sat one night on the couch with my two adult children watching a movie, I got chuckling, thinking about how this very serene, casual experience would have just been an ordeal a few years prior. Now, children are inquisitive, of course, but attempting to watch a full-length feature film with preschoolers is an experience that can test a person's sanctification, I can testify. I remember one instance when my kids were two and four years old and my family attempted to watch a movie together. I say attempted because as we started the viewing, we kept having to pause the film, like every 10 seconds, because someone would say, uh, Mom, why is he doing that? Or Dad, why is that happening? Why did they say that? Why are they crying? Why did they go there? Why is she wearing a blue shirt? Why, why, why? And at first, we attempted to engage this line of inquiry patiently. We thought we could help them better understand the plot of the movie storyline or perhaps understand some of the more complex nuances of the characters involved though I'm pretty sure this was a Disney film, not like Casablanca or anything, but still. But after about 50 whys in less than 10 minutes and realizing every response I gave just spoke to what was about to happen in the next frame of the film, I confess I got impatient and I'm not proud to admit I blurted out, just watch the film and you'll know why. <laughs> the truth is kids aren't the only ones who are pretty good at asking why, are they? We all seem to want clarity on the reasons things are as they are or why they occur at certain times or in particular seasons. Asking why is how we explain what's happening to and around us. We want to know the reason something is the way it is so that we can understand how that thing or that situation will impact us or affect us in the future. So this mindset of cause and effect is actually ironed into our fabric as human beings very early on in life. Identifying a reason or a cause for why something happens and then assessing effectively what the impact of that event or that instance is, is a very commonly utilized technique in teaching young kids to read, reading comprehension. And causality plays an enormous role in a number of fields, logic, law, science, engineering. So in many ways, we have been trained to ask the question why in almost every facet of our lives. I find this is especially true in instances uh, where we find ourselves in undesirable circumstances, where when things we haven't necessarily wanted to have happen have occurred. I'll offer a trite example. 
But if I file my tax returns only to find out I owe the government money, I inevitably ask, why? What is the reason for this? But if I get a return, I don't normally ask too many questions. I just celebrate and look forward to the deposit showing up in my bank account, right? When negative or difficult things happen, it's almost instinctive for us to ask why, to try to make sense of that which seems illogical, unproductive, senseless, or that which costs us dearly. And I think we do this at least in part because we believe if we can find a reason or a root cause for the hardship and struggles we are facing, then we'll somehow be able to better cope with the effects of those adverse things in our lives. But what happens when there is no good explanation, no clear cause that we can identify for the difficult things we go through? At least not ones that we can explain or reconcile or understand, certainly that we can make any sense of. How then do we live into the effects of these problems in our lives in a way that represents our identity as followers of Jesus Christ? This is the question. Now, as I mentioned last week, suffering and hardship were certainly not things the first century church was unfamiliar with or unaccustomed to. And again here, it's so important that we understand the specific type of suffering Peter is addressing in his encouragement to the early believers so that we don't trivialize or underestimate the intent of his words. Peter is speaking here of a kind of suffering that very few of us have much experience with, honestly. He's not talking about general struggle or hardship that it seems all humans experience in this life. Not things like sickness or physical ailments, lack of resources or relational distress. He's talking very specifically here about suffering that comes as a result of religious persecution. Remember, Peter is writing these words to men and women who, upon declaring Jesus as Lord, quickly learned that their countercultural profession of faith meant they would suffer at the hands of those who were threatened by their allegiance to another. These people elevated a kingdom other than Rome and her authorities, so they were ostracized and persecuted, not just for sharing their faith with others, but for choosing to live in ways based on morals and ethics and values that differed from those of the surrounding culture and the surrounding leaders. So this persecution took on any number of forms, the obvious being execution, martyrdom. But it also be, included being deprived of needed resources and government-provided services being denied basic health care, or even being cut off from their families. And so while dying was always a possible outcome of persecution for the first century church, I think the challenge of living in hostile Rome may have presented these believers with an even far greater possibility for suffering. And Peter emphasizes this reality in the way his letter is encouraging these followers of Christ. He speaks not to the possibility of suffering, rather the reality of it, saying, even though you must endure many trials for a little while, 
These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. In other words, if they've not already started happening, these trials, be assured they will begin soon. And he later tells them not to be surprised at the fiery trials they're going through as if something strange or unexpected was happening to them. Peter is pointing out here the inevitability of suffering for those who claim to be Christ followers. He's trying to connect these believers to the reality that Jesus himself was the model of such anguish, enduring not only crucifixion and death, but also the very human sufferings of hunger and thirst, heartache, betrayal, loss, denial, all for the sake of the mission of God to which he was called. But what's fascinating to me in this text is that while Peter is speaking directly to the certainty of suffering in the Christian life, he doesn't spend his words trying to explain why this is so. Instead, he directly makes the connection for these people. He links their way of life to the way of Christ, the way of suffering. And instead of lingering on the question, why are we suffering? Peter calls the church to a more important question. How should we respond to this inevitable reality of suffering? Now, as I said, while very few of us have ever truly experienced suffering due to religious persecution, I think Peter's letter speaks to an important and needed reorienting of both our hearts and our minds related to any form of hardship in this life. Because how much time and energy are lost when something bad happens in our lives because we're focused upon the question, why, instead of how? on looking for the cause of our suffering instead of attempting to align our response in that hardship to our identity as Christ followers. Emotionally, I get it. I understand the pull towards this first question. I think we ask why, because if we can understand the cause of our struggle, then we have a target upon which to direct our anger and our frustration and our disappointment. We ask why, because we need something or someone to blame for our suffering, to make sense of why it exists in the first place. And so I think this is a pretty common habit for us as human beings. I took some solace. I was uh, reading in John chapter two the other day, and this was the story of Jesus being with his disciples, of which Peter would have been there. And they come across this guy on the road. They get into a conversation with him and they come to find out he was born blind. The disciples feel this is so unfair and unjust, and instinctively we see them turn to Jesus and ask, why is this so? They even go so far as they start speculating on, it's, it's probably because his parents sinned before he was born, right Jesus? It was a helpful text to me, reminding me that I'm not alone in my desire to be able to explain why bad things happen or why we have to endure suffering in this life. But if we understand Peter's instruction and encouragement to the first century church, we see that since that experience with the blind man on the road, Peter has learned not to get caught up in trying to find an explanation for life's hardships. 
He's turned his focus toward encouraging a right way to suffer, teaching these people that there is a correct and godly response to circumstances and situations in this life that of course we would never choose for ourselves, but they come our way both because we are human beings living in a fallen world, fallen world and because we are followers of Christ, pilgrims journeying on the way of suffering. So instead of focusing energy and attention looking for the cause of our struggle, Peter advises us to turn our focus to how we respond to suffering because it's the response that ultimately testifies to or denies our true identities as followers of Jesus. So he begins by addressing our attitude in suffering. And I don't think Peter is completely out of touch with the realities of humanity. He is not encouraging people here to find ways to suffer or to go looking for problems. And he's certainly not slighting the incredible agony and anguish that inevitably accompanies human distress. But in light of the realities these first century believers were dealing with day in and day out, Peter encourages his readers to take on a spirit that is very counterintuitive. He tells them to have courage in the face of trials, to not be afraid. And he again recognizes that suffering is a part of this countercultural way of living they've committed themselves to. So while we may encounter and endure a very different form of suffering in our present circumstance, in our present day, I've been thinking a lot about our attitudes towards suffering, about my attitude towards suffering. And I have to tell you, I, I find myself a little surprised time and time again that it seems the dominant way we as human beings deal with these difficult realities in life is denial and avoidance. Suffering is an incredibly difficult road to tow, to be sure. For me, it's harder even still, more excruciating to watch one I love be in the journey of suffering. And yet so often, I see us engage those in the midst of really difficult situations and circumstance as if nothing is happening because we don't know what to say or what to do. So we take this posture, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally, of avoidance. A friend of mine who tragically lost her newborn son just moments after birth told me that one of the most heartbreaking parts of trying to re-engage her daily life following this unfathomable tragedy was navigating people's avoidance of her pain. She said this was especially true with those she engaged in the church. She was gracious. She recognized that people were uncertain of what to say, that they were afraid of saying the wrong thing and hurting her further. But actually, she said in their saying nothing, in avoiding the conversation and making no attempt to acknowledge what she was going through, her suffering somehow felt heavier and even more unbearable. I think we do this with our own suffering as well. Instead of looking at what we are going through straight in the face and identifying it for what it is, we often categorize our pain. We compare it to somebody else's struggle. So we attempt to pretend nothing is wrong by saying things to ourselves like, well, there are people who have it far worse than I do. 
Listen, I'll be the first person to tell you, I think perspective is a powerful tool that we have at our disposal. But if we use it in unhealthy ways, it can lead us to avoid facing the realities of our life, of our situation, and dealing with those situations in right and restorative ways. But if we believe what Peter says here, that there is a redemptive nature to suffering, then our attitude both in and towards suffering has to reflect that potential, that possibility. And it simply is not possible if our attitude toward it is that of denial and avoidance. Peter goes on to instruct his readers that their actions in response to suffering also matter. I'm honestly intrigued and humbled at the way Peter connects worship to suffering in this text. Because far too often, I think we conceive of worship as our response of joy and thanksgiving, generosity and praise. And all of those things are true and right responses to God. But Peter challenges us here to recognize the role obedience plays in worship. That we may not always feel like responding to God, but he is still worthy of our response to his revelation. Have you ever sat with someone who's going through the darkest night of the soul only to hear them give praise and honor to God in spite of their circumstance? There is hardly a more powerful and meaningful witness of our faith. It is an incredible testimony. It reminds me of One author who wrote that our ability to identify the fruit of the Spirit in a believer's life is only possible when we've been confronted with the absence of such a virtue, because only then can we fully appreciate and understand the beauty displayed in the distinctives of the obedient, faith-filled life. Peter was not encouraging the early church here to be militant or reckless with its witness. Again, he recognized the necessity for this group of believers to be shrewd and wise in the way they lived out their faith while living in hostile territory. But in light of the inevitable suffering that they were bound to encounter as Christians, Peter instructs them to respond in a way that is gentle and respectful, yet distinctly representative of the kingdom of God. It reminds me of uh, New Testament scholar Douglas Hare who says, our faith in Christ has to be actualized in our behavior, even when we are suffering. Finally, Peter guides us, his audience, to consider how our outlook on suffering will impact our our ability to endure and thrive in this life. And I think this might be the trickiest piece of guidance that Peter offers those who were suffering for Christ at this particular point in time in the first century. Because in the midst of so many trials and tribulations, I have to imagine that keeping a right future-directed mindset on what was happening around and to these early Christians was unbelievably difficult. Now, I am not a marathon runner, and I want to be really clear on that point. (laughs) But I'm fascinated by those who possess this talent and this interest. And I've watched a lot of long-distance races, finding that my very favorite part of the race, the portion where I really 
dial into where people are at emotionally is right around mile 22 or 23. If you don't know, you run a little over 26 in a marathon. Again, the idea of running anywhere near this many miles is unfathomable to me. So none of this is based on my own experience, rather from talking with friends who have willingly subjected themselves to this kind of nonsense. But as I've talked with these people who've done this, most tell me it's somewhere between mile 18 and 23 where they hit a a mental wall in the race. Because it's at this point where they start adamantly telling themselves they will never do this again, where they consider dropping out of the race altogether, and where some of them even begin contemplating the reality of death. Somewhere in this window, the internal dialogue gets real negative. But I like to watch this point of the race. Because at mile 22 or 23, as you've watched them work through this anguish and this derogatory self-talk, there always comes this moment where the outlook changes. You, You can see it in their countenance, in the way their stride transforms, it elongates and quickens. And it's when the finish line comes into view, when the reality of completing this task they've set out upon starts to seem possible again. Our perspective and our outlook in the midst of hardship and suffering is a powerful, powerful motivator to help us stay in the journey. And Peter knew this. So in his words of guidance to these believers who were subject to so much incredible grief and persecution and pain, he reminds them that these trials they are facing, they're just temporary. That as Jesus promised, a day was coming when ultimate justice and triumph would be his and therefore theirs as well. Look, the truth is nobody wants to suffer. Peter wasn't wishing that on these early believers, but he recognized the inevitability of it in their lives on earth as they walked with Jesus And so by shifting their consideration of how suffering was to be engaged and endured as believers versus why it was happening to them in the first place, I believe they were positioned to respond in a way that allowed them to fulfill their role as the church of Jesus Christ. Some of you, while not necessarily experiencing persecution for your faith are certainly walking through some extremely challenging situations and realities. And while I cannot nor would ever attempt to explain why you are enduring these things, I do hope you will be encouraged by Peter's words today to think about how you respond in your suffering If you're asking where on earth you begin that process, I'm not really sure. But it seems like even doing some hard reflection, some internal talking, as well as sharing with others, might help you start down this road, this journey. Ask yourself or engage others in answering some questions like, what is my default attitude towards suffering? Toward my suffering or to the suffering of others? Is my focus largely on why is this happening or have I started to make the transition to asking how can I engage this suffering well for the sake of Christ? Secondly, what actions in the midst of your struggle can you take to ensure that your witness does just that, does honor Jesus and make your identity as a Christ follower evident to those around you? 
And in the vein of being honest, ask yourself, where is this difficult? What moments does that feel impossible and heavy? And finally, what situations or scenarios in the midst of this hardship seem to most deeply impact your outlook on the future? Does that impact positive or negative? Does it fuel or frustrate your faith? Certainly, these are not easy questions to answer, but I believe by centering ourselves on our response to suffering versus the reasons for it, we begin to take steps clearly towards aligning ourselves with God's hand in our journey more clearly.